Truth Espresso, episode 274. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, for another episode of Truth Espresso. And I'd like to welcome back again my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea. Thank you for doing Truth Espresso again with me, sweetheart. Yeah, it's been a few weeks, so <laughs> it's nice to be back with you. Definitely had a lot going on these last few months, and you're doing a lot of uh, clinic work and up in the mountains, and we had a lot of birthday parties and holidays and... Yeah, and even being sick. And so, you know, our voices are still struggling a little bit, trying to get over this respiratory stuff, but we carry on. And for this Christmas episode of Truth Espresso, we're actually going to talk a little bit about a Christmas classic, which is none other than A Christmas Carol. And you think of any other Christmas classic that can even come close to A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? <laughs> it's a Wonderful Life is pretty cool, too. Another tale about basically redemption and the supernatural. <laughs> mm-hmm. A Christmas Carol has elements of heart and even a little bit of spookiness, but all in good humor, like Charles Dickens definitely knew how to tug at heart springs and bringing appropriate humor and jolliness and even, yeah, a little bit of spookiness to a story here. So, as we said, A Christmas Carol was written by Charles Dickens, and so what inspired this guy to write A Christmas Carol? So we'll learn a little bit about Charles Dickens here. He was born in 1812 and died in 1870, so he is definitely a product of the Victorian era, and he was the second of eight children. So we seem to learn a lot about uh, famous people recently, and they usually have a lot of siblings. And I talked about uh, Margaret Sanger, and she had a problem with having all these siblings and, and large families, but Charles Dickens didn't seem to have that thought from the 1800s. And they were at least supposedly a middle-class family, where Charles' family grew up in London for a time. His father, John Dickens, received decent pay as a clerk in the Navy, but one of John Dickens' problems had to do with managing money, and he seemed to be one of these people who really wanted to be a businessman, and he chased around dreams of that, but he was frivolous and tended to spend money and wonder what happened to it and get himself into problems. So, sweetheart, what happened to John Dickens, Charles Dickens' father? You know, kind of reading about how Charles Dickens grew up was kind of sad. Just seeing all the pressure that was put on him at a very young age. So, when Charles was about 12 years old, his father, John, had racked up a lot of debt. 
And that forced the family to have to sell the house. And that still wasn't enough to cover the debt. So John ended up in debtor's prison. And since Charles was the oldest male in the house, then at that time, responsibility for taking care of the household fell on the oldest male child. So Charles had to leave school and try to support his family. And he did this by working in a boot blacking factory, which is pretty much child labor at that point. And Charles, of course, didn't like being forced and especially into very hard labor like this. And that kind of influenced some of his writing as an adult. He could see a lot of the different social problems with people and also that disparity and living in poverty, especially with children, that he's like, there has to be something better and people need to be aware of what's actually going on here. Even though it's sad that you had to read reading about that and that he went through that, it's neat that he was able to use that to influence some of the writing and kind of create some awareness of what was going on with children in poverty. Sometimes bad things befall people, but yeah, this was a case where Charles Dickens could use his own personal experience in his writing that made his writing really touch nerves and be beloved to the people at the time and really turn him into a successful author in, in some ways on par with Shakespeare. Like at least he was like kind of the Shakespeare, the Victorian era and like Shakespeare, he invented words and phrases that we now use today. One that you pointed out to me, sweetheart, before we start recording, that comes from A Christmas Carol. If you've ever used or heard of the phrase, dead as a doornail, that comes from A Christmas Carol. I thought that was so funny, like, learning about that particular phrase, because it was part of Charles Dickens' dream that someone told him his friend was, like, dead as a doornail. (laughs) So, yeah, it was... (laughs) I'm like, why do we not have like cool dreams like that to come up with phrases that people will <laughs> eventually use? I would wonder what kind of dreams someone like Dr. Seuss had with all the words he came up with. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> so, um, this wasn't the end of uh, Charles Dickens' childhood issues with money and Now, his father was released from debtor's prison after three months, and their family fortunes actually improved a bit when a family inheritance allowed his father to pay off the rest of his debt, so having to sell all the stuff in their house, and that didn't cover all their debts, well, now they're able to pay off the debts and have some money left over, so Charles's mother, Elizabeth, wanted Charles to stay working, even though, like, she's probably a little insecure, like, hey, this is working for now, so maybe the little man of the house should continue to work, but um, Charles didn't want to do that. He wanted out of that, and he wanted to continue to do schooling, and his father agreed with him. Now, for better or for worse, you know, Charles ended up back at school, according to his and his father's wishes. We don't know if it was the best judgment on the father's part because the father didn't seem to understand the value of a dollar. But nevertheless, it happened to work out that way. And Charles kind of had a little bit of a grudge against his mother for expecting him to work. So he kind of worked that into some characterizations of mothers and his writings and stuff, unfortunately. 
unfortunately, but I mean, his father plays a role too in his writings, but the schooling that he did end up going to wasn't really that helpful for him. And so eventually he'd find what he was really good at doing, which his schooling didn't really help with, which was fiction writing. While Charles was in school, of course, his father still didn't learn his lesson, it seems. And so his father returned to mismanaging money and getting back into more debt. And then, of course, returning back to debtor's prison. And unfortunately, Charles, as the little man of the house, again, while he was in school, had to try to bail out his own father by borrowing money from his friends you think that would be really humiliating for a dad to have to have his own son borrow money from his friends to bail him out of debtor's prison? And then, to add insult to injury, when Charles's dad was released again from debtor's prison thanks to his own son and his, and his son's friends, his father, John, then kind of behind Charles' back, wrote letters to Charles's friends who Charles borrowed money from to get him out of prison to beg for more money. Like, okay, you might need to learn how to make money on your own and not spend it rather than begging for more debt. But yeah, that's unfortunately what Charles had to endure. And you could definitely see how that influenced Charles's writing. This all seems kind of bleak for poor Charles Dickens, but uh, what happened after this point? So after those few years of struggling with his dad in and out of prison, Charles eventually had to leave school at age 15 and start working again. And this time, kind of like his father, Charles worked briefly as an office clerk, which was really good experience for him. He was able to sharpen his writing skills and he was also able to start working shorthand reporting in law courts. After a few years of this, Charles was able to move up to a position where he was writing for London newspapers. So writing was definitely his forte, and he just kept moving up and progressing with that. And then by age 26, Charles married a woman named Catherine Hogarth. Hogarth? Not sure if I'm saying that right. <laughs> That's probably close enough. <laughs> okay. And her father was a magazine editor. And Charles and Catherine had 10 children together. <laughs> so awesome. So we still see large families in the Victorian era there. And yeah. But having 10 children together, that ultimately leads to lots of descendants. And so sometimes when it comes to someone from 150 years ago, we might forget that, hey, they might have great, great grandchildren that are walking among us or, you know. So some of the notable current living descendants of Charles Dickens might be someone that you've seen. Harry Charles Salisbury Lloyd, or Harry Lloyd for short. He's a great-great-great-grandson of Charles Dickens, and if you've ever seen the BBC, or British Broadcasting Corporation series of Robin Hood in 2006, and we've watched this a few times, mm -hmm. um, it has three seasons on it. So you have Robin Hood, and then you have Will Scarlet. So the character Will Scarlet was played by Harry Lloyd. 
So a great, great, great grandson of Charles Dickens plays Will Scarlet on Robin Hood TV series. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, so it's like we've seen the, I think we've watched that series about three times maybe, and we never realized that the Will Scarlet there was a descendant of Charles Dickens. <laughs> yeah. So the next one on our list is Gerald Roderick Charles Dickens. And he was a great-great-grandson of Charles Dickens and British actor. He does a one-man show of A Christmas Carol. Can you imagine, like, your great-great-grandfather is a famous fiction writer and, like, everyone knows the story that he wrote? And then you just, hey, I'm a descendant of his and I'm going to act out his famous novella here. Well, that's kind of neat because, I don't know, I kind of picture his great-great-grandfather, you know, reading his story <laughs> to the grandkids and then they pass it on and I would think you would kind of grow up knowing that, like, the back of your hand if Charles Dickens was your great-great-grandfather. So that's pretty neat. A descendant of Charles Dickens who continues honoring his own great-great-grandfather's story by acting it out. And now another descendant that you might recognize is someone by the name of Brian Forster. If you don't know the name, he's a great-great-great-grandson of Charles Dickens and is an American actor. So this was someone who ended up living, growing up in America, but descended from the British Charles Dickens. Brian Forster played child roles in one episode of The Brady Bunch, but mostly he's known for a recurring frequent role as a major character in The Partridge Family, and there have been several shows and movies that are kind of spin-offs of and related to The Partridge Family, and so he would reprise the role there. He was in a few other movies, but is mostly known for The Partridge Family, and the Partridge Family is an old show that was kind of a spin-off of The Brady Bunch. So yeah, I had no idea that The Brady Bunch, at least an episode of that, or even the, I had seen a few episodes of The Partridge Family, and I didn't realize that a descendant of Charles Dickens was one of the child actors in it. So, Charles Dickens' life experiences certainly influenced his writings, as we said. His experiences having to go through poverty, mostly because of his father. You'll see elements of his experience expressed in his works, which include Oliver Twist, A Christmas Carol, David Copperfield, and Great Expectations. These are his most well-known novels. Now, David Copperfield, not to be confused with David Copperfield the Magician later on, but Dickens's favorite novel that he wrote was David Copperfield because it was somewhat of like a semi-autobiography of his life. So he found characters in his life and kind of wrote them into this, you know, given different names and details being slightly different, but there'd be characterizations and some actions played out from his own experiences. And his father finds his way into David Copperfield as Mr. Wilkins Micawber, who at least initially mismanages money and goes to debtor's prison. <laughs> mm. 
Now, Charles Dickens seemed to be someone who liked to seek the redemptive angle of things. So this father character in David Copperfield, Mr. Micawber, wasn't the father of the main character. It turned out to be a friend that he met an older guy friend, but played the role kind of the way Charles's father was in life. But Mr. Micawber ends up kind of redeeming himself later on and becoming better at business and stuff. So Charles seemed to like to look for people who had bad characteristics. So Charles's redemptive angle shows up in his different novels, which of course... The one that we're looking at, the novella A Christmas Carol, definitely has that angle. And we could see elements of perhaps his father or other people that he knew or met to resemble Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. And so also his experience with child labor and poverty and stuff. Ebenezer Scrooge almost becomes like a morality play type character where here's the person, the miser, who doesn't recognize the social problems that people face today and how love and charity can help people who are struggling in these situations. And so, you know, there's work for people to do. There's good for people to do. And so some people just need to have a redemptive experience and have a change of heart. And then they could do good in the world instead of just seeking after their own interests that lead to loneliness and death. Are you just watching? Do you enjoy watching movies? The special effects, the interesting characters, the great stories. There's a lot to enjoy that comes out of Hollywood, but sometimes it's best to approach secular media with a healthy dose of critical thinking. Join me, E. Franklin, and Tim Martin as we discuss our favorite movies and share critical thinking for the entertained Christian. So visit areyoujustwatching.com to subscribe. And don't just watch. So now let's look at some interesting things about A Christmas Carol. So you keep mentioning a novella. A novella. A novella. Okay. Yeah. So what is that exactly? So a novella basically means a shorter novel. Like usually when we think of a novel, it's going to take several days to read. If you're putting it down, going to sleep and picking it up again, it's usually a longer book, like two to 300 pages of a lot of characters, a long fleshed out plot with quite a few chapters, a novella. So you have a short story, which might take you, say, like a half hour to read it, and then you have a novel on the other end. Now, somewhere in between that, you have a novella. Now, I've heard of other terms, and there's supposedly some kind of official measurement for what qualifies for each. Another term that I've read about is novelette. (laughs) And so it's supposedly like short story, then novelette, then novella, and then novel. (laughs) But nevertheless, A Christmas Carol is a novella by Charles Dickens, and he's first published in 1843. So it's longer than a short story and shorter than a full novel. And So I read through it as I was preparing for this episode. It took, like I didn't exactly time myself, but I estimated about two and a half hours total of reading it. So yeah, longer than a short story, but it didn't take me several days to read through it. 
So out of curiosity, did you have any traditions growing up that involved a Christmas carol? Hmm, let's see. I know that my brother John and I, as we were growing up as kids, our favorite version of A Christmas Carol was the Mickey's Christmas Carol, I guess that came out in the early 1980s. And even as a kid, I didn't realize that it was, hey, this thing is like less than a half hour. But amazingly, you know, it seems longer in some ways because it manages to get through the entire story having enough detail. It doesn't seem rushed. And it, you know, includes everything about the three spirits and tells the whole story and forget if it's like 28 minutes or something like that. But yeah, like our favorite was the Mickey's Christmas Carol as a kid. And I know I had seen a little bit of, as you know, my parents would watch like the 1930s version of a Christmas Carol. But then, I, and I think I would sometimes see them watching, I think it was a 1951 version, something like that. I think that's kind of an enduring classic film adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Nice. <laughs> I know I've seen other ones, like other cartoons. Of course, as a kid, you like cartoons, so I liked the Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. I remember watching Flintstone's Christmas Carol. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. So I know I was telling you, like our family tradition before the podcast here, Every Christmas Eve, we would make little beds underneath our Christmas tree and sleep. I mean, not directly under it, but like we'd try and get our feet all tucked up under the tree and sleep there until Christmas morning. But my mom had an ornament that was, I mean, probably like two inches by two inches. And it was a book of a Christmas carol. And it was shortened, of Mm -hmm. course, to fit in there. But we would always pull that off and read it. And then we'd go to sleep. I was like, one of my favorite things about a Christmas carol is just having that little tradition, like even us kids, that we would just do that every year. How long did it take you to read that little book ornament? I don't know, probably like five to ten minutes. Oh, okay. It was so really it was short. like a short story, not <laughs> mm-hmm. a no- novella, no. not even a novelette, <laughs> but possibly shorter than a short story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. This is like the Cliff Notes version, basically, right? Yes. <laughs> Let's see. So, if you never watched A Christmas Carol or read it, you probably still, I don't know, maybe you're not human or something. (laughs) (laughs) But, okay. So, I would assume that most people know about A Christmas Carol. If you haven't watched any adaptation of it or read it or whatever, you haven't seen Mickey's Christmas Carol, perhaps go out and watch or read, find, you know, research this. But it's the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a greedy miser, and he doesn't pay his employee, Bob Cratchit, much for him to take care of his family. His partner, Bob Marley, had passed away seven years ago as of the story. And then as he goes home on a Christmas Eve, he ends up getting haunted by the ghost of Bob Marley. Bob Marley's wearing chains. He tells him that he's going to face even a worse fate unless he changes his ways. And Scrooge asks him, what do I have to do? He tells him he'll be visited by three different spirits. 
And these are the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Each one of them has their own distinct look and personality. And through this process of all three spirits, eventually Scrooge realizes the error of his ways and then becomes a delightful man who recognizes the value, meaning, and goodness of Christmas and giving charitably to people and so yeah he vows to live the rest of his life with Christmas in his heart and so that's basically the story in a nutshell and with all the different adaptations to it you know people take some license with it as they render it in their own different way but when I look a little bit at the original story from 1843 and we'll notice some things in here that we may or may not see from adaptations to it now i know the fairly recent i think it was 2009 that it came out it was uh Scrooge was voiced by Jim Carrey, and it was kind of a computer-rendered adaptation, and it had things more that you would read from the book, and it has this part in it where we actually see a well-known political phrase. So when I did the episodes about Margaret Sanger, Margaret Sanger did have some influence from the Neo-Malthusian Society in England, and Scrooge kind of as the villain who gets redeemed in this story utters a Malthusian phrase. Malthusian basically is an idea that we need population control, that there's too many people and that explains poverty because if you have too many people, they basically eat too much food until the only way to solve it is if some people starve and die to allow more food for the survivors. And if you don't regulate population control, then this cycle will keep happening as the population trajectory grows. But Scrooge utters a Malthusian phrase to the charity workers who come to his office door and ask for donations to the poor. So, about the poor who would rather die than be stuck in union workhouses or debtors' prisons, Scrooge said, quote, If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Unquote. Now, this phrase, yeah, we see how, like, heartless that was. So, at least we see from Charles Dickens' novella here that he wasn't promoting Malthusianism. <laughs> so, that's a good thing to say about the classic Christmas tale. And the ghost of Christmas present, when he shows Scrooge Bob Cratchit's house as they're celebrating Christmas, and Tiny Tim, who's ill and on crutches... And Scrooge is worried that Tiny Tim might uh, pass. And the ghost of Christmas present turns what Scrooge said earlier back on him and mockingly says, quote, What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. And then the, the story shows how Scrooge hangs his head and kind of like laments inside how his words came back to him in a way that he, you know, he didn't even think about. And then the ghost uh, then asks him, quote, Will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? 
It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child, unquote. Mm. <laughs> I think that's definitely against the Malthusian idea and, you know, a good moral lesson there to, uh, for Scrooge to realize, like, wait a minute, they should die and decrease the surplus population? Like, what is the surplus population? Maybe you're a member of it, not poor people like this tiny Tim here. So when we look at A Christmas Carol, we can see that there's definitely some religious themes that we can get from this story and it can help us reflect on even how we live and how we treat other people. And some of the Christian themes that we see and one that I just jotted down later because I thought it was really interesting was just even looking at the main character's name. So Ebenezer means the Lord helped us. And that comes from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. And then you have Scrooge. So Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge means like selfish or miserly, mean. So I think it's cool how his name shows that dichotomy of the Lord helped us in his first name. And then that selfish, like miserly person who's like unmoved from anyone or anything. And also another term for Ebenezer that we see in the Old Testament often was where you made these headstones to remember things that had happened. And these stones were supposed to be solid and immovable. Like you can't break them. They stay there as a remembrance. And kind of similar to how Scrooge lived his life, he was very hardened and just so inwardly focused that he wasn't touched by these poor people or the sickly child or just even details like the office where his employee worked was freezing cold and he wouldn't even give them an extra piece of coal to warm it up. They had to work in these freezing conditions. So it was just like he had no heart or soul. And kind of like that Ebenezer stones in the Old Testament there. And then another like picture of that is when the ghost of the things yet to come, when he shows him his headstone, like the gravestone, and his name is etched into it. Hmm. It's just like another example of, okay, if you're heading down this path of having this hard and cold heart, then you're going to end up like the stone, like immovable, untouchable, and just like that coldness, I guess. So I, I thought just even with his name that there's, you know, you can read into a lot of things too, of course, but it was just kind of neat studying that out and looking at those things and just that dichotomy with that. The name Ebenezer is a Hebrew name there from the Bible. And you said like his name is intended to represent someone who's cold, hard, and unmovable. But it's interesting that the Ebenezer was meant to show that the Lord helps. You know, it's a solid remembrance there. But yeah, the Lord helped Ebenezer change by three spirits. <laughs> I know that some of these quotes here from the original story seem to get lost in a lot of the adaptations. And so you kind of noted that there's a lot of critics that would claim that a Christmas story is a, a secular tale. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there's religious themes throughout the story and they're in the original version and then different movies or animations and stuff like that, different adaptations they do kind of seem to turn it more into a secular story and lose the mentions of biblical themes. So some of those themes 
when Scrooge's nephew Fred shows up in his office in the first stave of the story and invites him to, you know, eat Christmas dinner with him. Scrooge asks him, like, why do you celebrate Christmas? And Fred mentions that Christmas, you know, apart from, quote, the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, unquote, that, you know, there's a lot of charity and cheer and love and stuff like that. So Fred mentions of Christmas, the veneration due to its sacred name and origin. So what could he mean by that other than the word Christmas, meaning Christ's body or Christ's incarnation? That's really what it means. Christ's birth, Christ's incarnation. That's the sacred name and origin. You know, what is he referring to is the birth of Christ there. And then a little bit later in the book, you see that it's describing the hearth around Scrooge's fireplace. And on the stones, there are engraved pictures of different Bible characters and events that take place. So that's another reference to just some of the biblical understanding that Charles Dickens was kind of weaving through his book here. Cain's and Abel's and angels in the sky and Queen of Sheba, I think. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what else it, it mentions. It's describing this when the ghost of Bob Marley is, is visiting. And so while the ghost of Bob Marley is there and telling Scrooge about his fate, he tells Scrooge, quote, Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? So the ghost of Bob Marley, like I haven't seen that quote in any adaptation of A Christmas Carol, but in some way it seems like almost an allusion to the gospel there the gospel story of Christmas and that one reason that the ghost of Bob Marley is bearing his chains, you know, he wasn't sensitive to what the star leading the wealthy wise men over to see the poor king who was born and to realize the true meaning of Christmas there. And he kind of cut himself off to that and was just self-centered. And then one of our next themes that we see in the Christmas Carol is when Bob Cratchit tells his wife that Tiny Tim, quote, hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men to see, unquote. So who's that talking about there? (laughs) Yeah, so he's talking about how Jesus helped and healed people. And that was kind of his hope that people would see him and think of Jesus when he was going to church and stuff. I think Tiny Tim is one of my favorite characters <laughs> in the Christmas Carol because he's this like innocent, sweet little boy. He just has this joy and peace, mm. even though he's poor and he's lame and could soon be on his deathbed even. That doesn't stop him from living life and seeing good in other people and like trying to lead other people. Like he is pretty much one of the only characters in the Christmas Carol that's not afraid of Scrooge. (laughs) And even though Scrooge is mean and cruel to his family and other people, Tiny Tim's just like, well, he needs love too. And it just reminds me of how throughout scripture, how Jesus is always like telling others, you need to have faith like the little child and let the little children come to me. 
and how children can just have just this innocent and sweet spirit that can draw even the coldest, hardest heart of an old miserly man like Scrooge to start to have that shift in that and change in, in perspective. So yeah, that's kind of a tangent, but that's why I like Tiny Tim. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Scrooge's nephew, Fred, also seems to have one of those spirits of having hope for Scrooge and being kind to him no matter how mean he is to him or insensitive. I noticed when I was reading A Christmas Carol, it would mention church several times, and it seemed to make this theme, like contrasting Scrooge's life that was so dark and lonely and self-centered and miserly, and his disdain for Christmas with the Christmas season of people going to church on Sunday, you know, or, or on Christmas Day, and how this was associated with the joy that people would have with the meaning of Christmas and then how families would gather together and they'd celebrate Christmas and even if they're poor they would still plan out and with what little they'd have they would be able to put together what to them seemed like a big feast and stuff and so yeah church seems to play a role in the good side of the story like if you have the right spirit you know or your redemption you know having Christmas in your heart would mean you're one of the people who goes to church and recognizes the one who makes lame beggars walk and so on. And so the last mention of a biblical theme that I noticed in the original Christmas story was when the ghost of Christmas yet to come is showing Scrooge his possible future. One scene, it shows the possible future of Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim had passed there and Bob Cratchit's trying to keep his joy up while the family's kind of grieving. But Bob Cratchit reads from Mark 9.36 where, you know, it says he mentions he has the book and he reads that Jesus took a child and set him in the midst of them. So, you sweetheart, you mentioned that, you know, Jesus talking about having a faith like this little child. Well, that's this passage here that's quoted during what's otherwise very dark and creepy possible future scenes, but it has Bob Cratchit trying to cope with this and be sober and loving to his family and trying to keep his cheer up, and he reads from the Gospel of Mark here. And so these are a lot of Christian themes, biblical themes, mentions of things in the Bible and Christianity that we like and appreciate a lot of the modern adaptations of A Christmas Carol, but most of them don't have these things that are in the original novella. And so, yeah, we encourage you to read the original novella so you could see some more of these Christian themes. And so, yeah, is A Christmas Carol merely a secular tale for entertainment and just general secular redemption? I would say, we'll let you be the judge of that, but I encourage you to read for yourself and we'll provide a link in the show notes for that. So one thing that I was reading that I think is kind of important to keep in mind too is that through the story, it shows just the reflection on your life and like, okay, am I living, like thinking eternal? And mm. that's kind of what the spirits help Scrooge look at eternally. Like how you're living your life today, is this the path that you want to continue on or is there a different path you can take? 
but just remembering like that Christ is the one that changes Mm. your heart and changes that path for you. So it's not going to church isn't going to change that or looking at doing good things. So, I mean, Scrooge changing and giving away his money or getting the best prize turkey to (laughs) the Cratchit family. Like those aren't things that actually changed his heart or changed his perspective. Those were the fruit Mm. of what Christ can do in us. And just like remembering that with looking at Christmas and just reflecting on what Christ has done for us, that he is the one that makes that change in us and that's what I think can get lost sometimes so and I love that when you look at a Christmas carol sometimes people are like oh don't be such a Scrooge or you hear these different comments like that and you think I mean just theoretically in a Christmas carol if Christ can change Scrooge's heart and change like his path and how he treated others and how he thought of others like he can do that in my life too I just think that it gives you hope. And that's one of my favorite words around Christmas time is hope, that we have this hope that Christ came and he came with that purpose of eventually going to the cross and paying for our sin. And now we can have that relationship with him and have that change in us. Yeah, I don't know what else to say after that, sweetheart. And so, yeah, we encourage you to read the original version of A Christmas Carol. We hope that you enjoyed a little background uh, information to Charles Dickens, the writer behind A Christmas Carol, and some of the biblical themes from it. And so, is Christmas Carol just some cute little secular tale? Well, you could either say, bah humbug, or you could say, God bless us, everyone. Aww. (laughs) and merry christmas (laughs) oh yes and merry christmas and hope that you had a a good christmas as you listened to this episode of truth espresso and of course stay tuned for more episodes of truth espresso and god bless us everyone thank you for waking up with truth espresso good morning and god bless your day Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.